1: hello and welcome to the publicly challenged podcast i'm your host luke oswald and i hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter angler and forager stick with this and who knows maybe we will learn something together all right so i'm sitting here and i am talking to poldy Wheeland. And, yes, sir. Uh, and, Poldy, uh, could you go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening?
2: Absolutely. So, my name is Poldy Wieland. Um I live currently in Montana, in Bozeman, living the outdoor life out here, really enjoying it. I've been here for a year and a half now, but uh, originally from Germany, then uh moved to Wisconsin around middle school moved back to Germany and eventually decided I need to come back to the U.S. and uh, really start getting into backcountry hunting, foraging, just really enjoy the wild places that the U.S. has to offer. And that was actually one of the literally one of the main reasons why I came back to the U.S. from Germany um, after after staying there for quite some time after high school, Uh, all that you know that possibility for public land and the opportunities in terms of hunting fishing and foraging we can do here in the US just screams freedom to me and that's what I what I seek so yeah happy to be back in the US and just living living the wild food life out here I guess
1: Absolutely I uh, I I love that I love the fact that you You realize it screams freedom, and I wish other people would, and they'd want to protect it as much as they can as well. I think that's a very important avenue that we need to approach these days to try and get as many hunters on board as possible, and just outdoorsmen in general, and uh, have people realize how how beautiful and wonderful these resources are and how, how it's been set up for us.
2: And they really are. Like, me being from Germany... There's, you know, I didn't grow up with public land. There's no public land in Germany. It's all private or state-owned, and the state-owned isn't public. Um, You do have, like, hiking trails that go through private woods and whatnot that everyone can use, but it's not something where you can just go out and and hunt and fish on. There's some gray areas with foraging where the landowner doesn't know really, you know, no one's really going to do anything, but you just don't have these beautiful Giant pieces of land that are just protected under law or by law that literally every citizen can access and use and utilize in many ways so um, it's it's really is a beautiful thing, like you said, and I think it just offers the opportunity for us, especially those of us that are you know so used to living in the city and never get to see the outdoors, to go out there and participate almost in a a life that's similar to what our ancestors did. And that's something that drives me a lot. But the one thing is like you just said, like it's people take it for granted here. I've noticed that especially like people have lived here their entire life. Um, you know, when, when something, when you have something forever like that, or it's just so normal, it it often becomes something that you, you know, don't value as much anymore. But the big thing is that yeah, these public lands are beautiful, right? But they're only beautiful until they aren't. So we need to make sure that we take care of them and protect them.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I uh, I, I think that was beautifully put. And it makes me wonder, though. You're living in Bozeman now. Have you uh, have you taken the scenery for granted yet? Is there any mornings no. where you zone out and you don't you don't realize what's around you anymore?
2: Yeah, I have. <laughs> it, it it just like you said, like, it just happens. Um, but there's always these moments where I'm just driving home from work or I'm just driving on a on a road late in the evening and you see the sunset come in over the mountains and it's just it hits you with awe and you're just like, Wow, like I'm happy I've made it here to this place now and I can enjoy all of this and I wish more people could, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So before Germany spent some time in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Uh, yes, sir. Home of the OKS Hunter podcast, and, yeah, which uh, I had no idea yeah, about. We were talking just... about that <laughs> earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, but so when when you were first over here and the time in high school and stuff that you spent, or after high school, I think you said, uh, was there any hunting involved then? So,
2: I basically no. During that time, now, so I was here middle school till high school, and then I moved back to Germany for three years. Before that, everything before middle school was all grown up there. Uh, there was not really any hunting. There was just some fishing. I initially got into hunting and fishing in Germany when I was a kid. My dad has been a lifelong hunter. I think he's got 40 years of having his German hunting license now. Um, and that's how we bonded. Like he took me out hunting, it was all kind of focused on the nature connection, more so than the food, because today it's all about the food for me, really. Um and I couldn't hunt myself because in Germany you need to be 18 to hunt and you have to take a pretty extensive hunting course, and we can get into that if you like. Um, so it was just kind of bonding time with dad, and then mom was knew about a few like foraged goodies, like you know, a couple of mushrooms, the German ramps, the German uh, wild onions or leeks. And we'd sometimes go out to try and get those and use them in the kitchen a little bit, but yeah, again, it was just more so the experience was the focus and then, when I did move to the u s with my mom, I stepped my little brother um let my dad stay in Germany um I kinda lost interest in in all that i My dad was a driving factor for it, and I didn't have him there, so I just didn't really get into hunting. I don't know why I always like i did my i got there i did my hunters. Uh, safety course when i was like 13 but then i never went out i think it was just my stepdad and my mom didn't know anything about guns and i was still pretty young and i for some reason it just fell to the wayside I, like i said i was fishing a little bit but the hunting and fishing really came when i moved back to germany after high school that's when that really took off for me
1: so over in germany what what is that like then as far as being able to hunt and and opportunities to hunt what is yeah, that like it,
2: it's way different than here in the US. Here in the US, I mean, I think Wisconsin doesn't even have an age limit now to go hunting. Uh, anyone I'm pretty sure can can go out with a, and take the hunter safety. In Germany, you have to be um, ideally 18. You can be 16 to get your hunting license, but then until you're 18, you can only hunt with a mentor. If you get your hunting license at 18, you're elig- eligible to go out hunt by yourself. Now, barriers of entry are pretty high. Um, there's only about, I think, 350,000 hunters in Germany, 85 million people. My numbers might be a little off, but so there's a very little amount of people that do it, a little a small amount. Um, the hunting course over there is usually mine was, I think, two and a half grand in euros. So that's more in dollars. Um, it was a nine month hunting course. And super involved like i mean it was basically like taking a college course you know like we had seven books that were like hundreds of pages thick one about mammals one about feathered wild game one was just about um wildlife management one was um about guns and weapons so all these different subjects and we would meet usually once or twice a week in the afternoon uh, sometimes like 10 hour days in the weekend and different teachers for each subject. And we just all meet as a group and and go through all the learning material. It was very hands-on. You'd go out into nature. Um, For example, one time we went out with a forester and we had to learn about all the trees and plants. And during the actual hunting exam, (laughs) there's a practical and a written exam part. In the practical part, for me, I actually had to identify trees. And this was in like, I think it was like february or something so they had no leaves so i had to identify <laughs> trees by the bark you know um but the whole system is really built to turn you into almost like uh a, like a ranger you know like a wildlife conservationist um not just someone who goes out and, and kills an animal for fun or something like that. You know, there's a lot of focus on traditions, etiquette, which we can get to if you like. Um, There's a lot of focus in like on processing. So during my course, we had to go on several drive hunts and then the animals that were harvested, we had to process and whatnot. Um, We had to learn about hunting dogs. That was cool. We had a whole field day with going out with a dog trainer and seeing the dogs work and all that. So it's very holistic. Uh, It's a pain in the butt. Because it's so long and it's so much money, but I'm so happy I did it, even though it was too much information and I don't remember everything I learned. You know how it is in college too.
1: Um, <laughs> I and, imagine uh, you retain quite a bit, though, and and you have to admit that something like that so something that's so encompassing uh, definitely leaves a lasting impression upon you, and probably creates a better hunter, more ethical hunter, and a more understanding hunter than somebody who just goes through a eight-hour course or whatever it is here in the United States and, and calls it good and goes out with Joe's six-pack cousin and rides around on the back roads and shoots something out of somebody's field. No, I'm not saying yeah. that everybody does that, but but having that rigorous barrier to entry does create a better hunter. Although, that's, I mean, that's not what we want, right? We don't want a barrier. We want everybody to be able to enjoy it, or at least everybody that wants to.
2: Yeah. No, I agree. It definitely does. It, I think it creates a more knowledgeable, more aware individual. Um, you know, it, the, all what really, I think what separates Germany a bit too is because of how they view hunting as like, you know, almost like a special thing, a really, really special thing. Like not many people do it. Um, there's just a lot more like etiquette and ethics and traditions and people want to follow that, you know, out here, you often, you know, you, you know, that the saying, like, if it's brown, it's down, like, you don't really have that in Germany, yeah. um, my dad would, during drive hunts, he would always tell people, um, you know, if you shoot goulash, you buy goulash. Cause in Germany, uh, you can still sell wild game meat. And if you're invited to a drive hunt. Let's say my dad is, is doing a drive hunt on the land he leases. And I didn't get into the whole...
1: Well, yeah, drive. we'll definitely cover that.
2: Land. Yeah, um, he, will, he owns the animals that the people shoot. He invites a bunch of hunters. He invites a bunch of people that come as, I think they're called beaters in the U.S., like drivers. They go through his sticks and try to move the animals towards where the hunters are located. Um, and the hunters that shoot an animal and bring one down, they don't actually get the animal. They get first dibs on buying it, which is kind of interesting. Totally different than here. Um, So he would always say, like, to the hunters before we started, like, if you shoot goulash, like, if you shoot bad, you know, if you just shoot it at an animal and shoot in the guts or whatnot, like, you're buying it. Like, I (laughs) I can't do much with that animal anymore. So, um, because it's, you know, I mean, a lot of the meat quality starts at before you take the shot right so um yeah so that that's that's pretty interesting
1: so yeah let's cover the actual opportunity as far as being able to hunt and yeah and where you could hunt then
2: right so yeah i didn't get into that um so once you do let's say i i get my hunting license i pass this written exam i pass this like practical part of the exam which includes shooting by the way like once a week during the course we had to do shooting lessons And we even had to shoot at a moving target, like a moving boar. But once you have your hunting license, there's a three year period where you cannot lease any hunting land. And in Germany, like I said, you can't just go hunt on public land. You need to go to a hunter that either owns their own property and has the hunting license, meaning that they own their own property and they have the right to hunt, or a hunter that has the license and then leases land. From landowners usually here it would be one landowner because most people have a ton of land but over there you know if you have an acre you're like a big deal so what happens is like the the state groups different landowners because the woods are all split up into tiny like parcels of different landowners they put them into a coalition and then that coalition is required to either hunt on there someone from that coalition or they have to lease it out to a, a hunter so my dad, for example, like leases land and usually it's a contract of six used to be nine years, now it's six years. So he's got to lease that land for at least six years. And I think they do that so that you can't just go in and shoot everything and leave. Because in Germany there's no tax system either. Like the hunter who leases the land basically becomes the wildlife manager of that area, decides how many animals he's gonna remove, how many what he's gonna leave and whatnot. So, for you to be able to hunt, you either have to have had your hunting license for three years, allowing you to lease land legally, or you get invited to hunt. You know, the hunt. A person leasing the land gives you the tells you written permission to go hunt on their land. And usually, how that works um, is that uh, me as a young hunter, which is literally what they call you in the first three years, like a young hunter, um, I offer up my ability to work and help out on this on the land you're leasing as a hunter who can and in return i get to hunt so they built these like co-ops um it's actually kind of what doug dern is trying to do with the sharing the land project i don't know if you've followed that at all i have not but uh, it's basically to get access you offer up something to the landowner be it and or in germany the person leasing the land for hunting so you offer up you know your helping build tree stands, doing clear cuts, like conservation and land management projects, actually going out and hunting because sometimes the person leasing the land might be an old hunter and he might not have time to hunt as much. And yeah, there might not be a tax system, but the landowners get pretty pissed off if you don't hunt enough over there because there's so much damage, right? Like it's crazy how much the wild boar are causing damage into woods and into fields over there and and the farmers and landowners there's really a lot of butting heads right now at least in my region between hunters and farmers and landowners because the hunters just can't keep up with the growth of the boar population and the amount of damage that the boar do is uh is really going getting out of hand a bit so that's germany actually just uh legalized the night vision scopes and what nice
1: i mean do do they allow uh live trapping of them or no (sighs)
2: I think in some areas to do it. i definitely remember covering that in in my uh in in my course but usually trapping in germany is really tightly regulated it's uh, even hard like there's even a bigger barrier than just going out to hunt because you need your hunting license and then you need to get all this other certifications hmm. and i think
1: trapping you know. is probably like a live trap is the most effective way to get to where they don't get educated uh from yeah. what i've seen anyway that you can take 25 hogs in one night and not a single one because they tend to follow that sow around and that the sow is the leader of that group and she keeps, you know, birthing more piglets. Right. And, uh, and she, she tends to have a, a big following and if some of those get away, they get educated and then, and then it kind of becomes fruitless to keep trying to do that. So being able to have a giant large live trap and bait them into it and have it closed once they're all in there you know have a a remote camera with a remote or whatever they do looks pretty effective
2: makes a lot of sense to me germany is a lot like they're weird with all the technology and stuff like yeah it took them forever to even get like the night vision scopes now legalized and i know that that's already making a huge impact like when i was just back in germany they did say that it's been a lot more manageable with the wild boars you know Um, because they in germany it's where I'm at, at least, you don't have these crazy giant pieces of land. Like, when I'm hunting, there's almost always uh, someone walking with a dog, someone riding on horseback <laughs> that I'm seeing, you know, or someone on a bike. Like, it's very tough,
1: where I'm at, at least. That's some of the get. public land spots I hunt, <laughs> actually.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, You just have to be, I think you city. have to be,
1: like, 60 yards away from certain trails and things like that some of them i believe are a hundred but uh you, you have to be away from them but you still see all these people and they veer off the trail and they're coming 10 yards 20 yards from your tree stand and it gets frustrating at times and i tend to try to not hunt those places
2: yeah and where my dad leaves this land it's kind of hard to avoid it and the board just gets so educated and because of this constant pressure they just become so unpredictable. Like you don't know when they're going to come out, and like we've had them on cameras during all times of the day, you know. Yeah. So
1: so, so how is it? Is it almost all with firearm? Is there any uh, archery equipment or how, what, what's utilized? Uh,
2: it's all firearms. I know there's some spots now that legalized archery for boar specifically. I think I remember reading an article about some county that was doing it, but overall archery is kind of like it's not legal for the most part and it's kind of seen as unethical you know in the crowd which obviously you can argue about that but um <laughs>
1: yeah we uh, were just talking about the ethics yeah. of spears a minute ago so <laughs> right
2: overall like when i tell like i was taught in my hunting course that archery is like super unethical and um i think they have some points you know there there is but you can also hunt really unethically with a firearm so yeah, it's mostly guns and then no there's like no semi automatics. Um it's all bolt action. Uh shotguns are like double barreled, so
1: they know. do use suppressors though, um, right?
2: I am not a hundred percent sure. I'd have to check on that to be honest. That's something because I never really thought about it. I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they do. You'd
1: almost think as as crowded as some of that land is that you're talking about, you'd almost need that Water. to not uh yeah or at least want it to not scare all the the homeowners and residents and and your buyers you know
2: yeah yeah if <clears throat> i mean it's already pretty difficult to get one in the u.s so i assume it's even harder to do it in germany to be honest so i mean in germany i go through this hunting license and everything and i cannot conceal carry or anything like that yeah like there's no open carry no concealed carry um the rules with like leaving guns in your vehicle, like, there's no chance. You can have it in your car when you're going to hunt, but the uh, um, the bolt needs to be, like, removed and stuff like that. Like, it's super strict. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My state's like that. I don't know if you know that. I don't um, know that. No. Yeah, my state is is very strict on those rules. And uh, it's sad to say that the only reason we have a concealed carry is because a woman actually got raped and beaten within inches of her life, and she sued the state for that right. They had to take it to the Supreme Court. And that is the only reason we have a concealed carry in Illinois.
2: That's wild Yeah, they took that. Yeah.
1: They took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and she fought her case, and it was a valid point that if she was able to defend herself, her three attackers would have never been able to make that happen. Yeah, And, uh, I mean, it's it's a sad situation that it had to come to that, but I'm very thankful for that woman to have the fortitude to come forward and, and make that happen.
2: Right, right. No, that's definitely something I enjoy about the U.S. It's Just having at least the ability to protect yourself if you need it. Like, granted, I never want to use it, but having the ability to and the, that's right. the option it's, to. It's
1: that yeah. freedom. <laughs> yeah. Once exactly. again, that word freedom, which I, I also think is uh been misconstrued a lot um by people and what, what the definition of true freedom is, but it ultimately freedom is being able to protect yourself, others, and uh have the right to choose.
2: With that <laughs> and also to me a big part about freedom is not, you know, not being so self reliant on the food system, our current food system. For me personally, like that's one of the major reasons why I hunt fish and forage is so that I can live a more self, like self-sufficient life, and uh, not have to buy all this crap. Frankly, like that's in well, the grocery store shelves.
1: Also, the crap over here, right? I mean, versus yeah. versus in Europe and Germany, where they do have some purity laws within the food and and the, the chi- beer, the food chain, at least the beer, right? Uh, it used to be a lot of food too, though, right? To where yeah,
2: but it's changing, man. Like, yeah. I've seen a lot of like people go away from the more more traditional diet cuisine to you know now you can get Skittles and uh all these like Reese's cups and stuff. Where when I first like lived in Germany, that was, was pure chocolate. Like, I, so, yeah. <laughs> I I was bringing that as a gift to my friends, you know, uh before I was enlightened with nutrition and like eating more like ancestrally aligned and whatnot um but now it's it's changing and people are eating similar similarly crappy ultra processed stuff Mm. sadly
1: that's we always used to buy german sauerkraut actual german sauerkraut versus like the franks that you get we would go to a german deli and uh get our bratwurst and our and our sausages from there and the german sauerkraut because it was still like the old recipes you know and and it was actually pure sauerkraut where it was actually fermented and it was just salt and water and nothing else and that that meant something to me and it's sad to see that go now that you know it probably won't be imported so pure anymore
2: (laughs) well i think actually there's a a push like we were just talking a bit before about like covid and whatnot and I think there's a push to more traditional foods again people are waking up to the fact that 58 percent of what the average american eats a day is ultra processed uh, in a year is ultra processed food and oils and, <laughs> and, and, and seed oils exactly like just stuff that if you showed it to our ancestors and how it's made it'd be like what are you putting in your body you know
1: yeah um
2: stuff that's totally devoid of nutrition um might have your like fats and carbs but it's just absolutely lacking the micronutrients your body needs to thrive and uh the wild foods is a great way of bringing some of that back into your diet and if you're willing to pay with your time instead of you know more so than your money i think it's a it can be very lucrative yeah um, getting into the wild food side of things and wild food procurement
1: so speaking of wild foods and stuff how how did that journey start for you then i mean did it start in germany i know you said a little bit with wild edibles but but was it something that was uh stayed with you the whole time or no
2: so i you know i came to the whole food thing um through Bodybuilding and nutrition, actually like hobby bodybuilding. When I moved back to Germany after after spending high school in in Wisconsin, um, I was all about like training and eating super clean. Um, You know, really realizing that what I put in my body is fuel for my body. Like that's what's gonna make me feel good. It's gonna give me clarity of mind and just be able to perform really well. Then I started all the hunting and fishing with my stepbrother and he was actually doing a uh, apprenticeship to becoming a organic farmer. So we had all these conversations like me from the nutrition side of everything I knew and him from the like farming side and food procurement side. And we just came to this realization that the food system is just effed up and (laughs) that most of what we eat is just not good for us. And then we like had this aha moment, like, Whoa, we're hunting and fishing. Like we have like, access to all this now and more so than most people and it's probably super like it is super nutritious you know like i mean if you're looking at an elk or whatnot you're eating like an athlete right you're eating this yeah. animal that's out there every day exposed to the to nature to the environment it, a healthy plant and farming often like one that has more nutrition is the one that was able to really You know that wasn't pampered like a piece of corn that was just sprayed or given a bunch of fertilizers. It's the one that was able to work with the with the environment, and it was the one that was
1: able to grow within the cracks of the sidewalk, even though someone sprayed. That's
2: the
0: healthy one, (laughs) (laughs) yeah,
2: like that. That's the powerful one, and uh, yeah. So from there on, uh, like hunting and fishing, kind of started it, and then this, like, I remembered foraging with my mom, and I was just like wanting to get more into the plant side of things and i thought it was so cool cuz like no one around me knew anything about it so i wanted to learn a bunch about foraging and and uh then when i came back to the us i connected with some friends in college who were really uh i studied my college in botany and we really got into it and we spent most of our time especially during covid like out there uh foraging hunting fishing and uh yeah i mean I always say, you know, on my podcast, I I do a podcast, too, Year of Plenty, which is... Yeah, we didn't get into that yet. (laughs) Yeah, like traditional foodways, wild foods, homesteading and whatnot. Those are all nutrition. Those are all topics I cover. But on a podcast, I always say, once you get into this wild food thing, you'll literally never be bored again because there's so many rabbit holes. Like, it's a lifelong journey. Yeah, it's a journey. You know, it's such a journey. And that's actually the big thing that i think people should focus on is not just to kill and getting to food although that's definitely the most important for me is getting to food but if you focus on the process the journey um the nature connection you can just come home with a much more enriched life i think even absolutely even if you don't if you, there... if you never kill anything you know
1: no and that's the beauty of of the all encompassing lifestyle to where you do forage and i talk about it all the time But I can't help it, right? Even though you're out hunting and say you don't get something, having that foraging background, learning those other plants and all those other things around you, you're constantly surrounded by food. It's never a failure. It's a success of some sort. And, And one week you might be out there and kill a deer and you want to go out and kill a deer the next week as well. But you don't kill a deer. But you end up finding something that wasn't in season even a week ago and now it is. Uh yeah. I love that, I love early October when I'm deer hunting. Nobody else is out in the woods for some reason because it's football season and they're still wrapped up in that and my weekends are wide open and I don't watch the sports. I could care less about what's going on with those sports because there's so much out there in the real same. world. I am not I'd rather be an active participant than an armchair quarterback. And, 100%. And by doing that and getting out there and doing those things I have free range of the woods and also now I have access to all those wonderful of the woods mushrooms and and yeah. there's been times where I filled up game bags and a I backpack I missed those so much full of them
2: <laughs> I miss yeah no that's like of the woods great example of if you get onto the right like amount at the right time you can walk away with 13 15 pounds, you know you can freeze it yeah you can um i mean you can feed yourself and others for a while just with one find and i i i miss henna wood so much i don't have any oak oak trees out here in montana and that's like one of my absolute favorites they,
1: i mean you have the king bull right so that's a pretty good right. trade-off though
2: yeah also kind of a new one for me like last year was really the first one uh first time me and my buddy hayden really got into it and um oh well, sorry not last year but the year before because last year the crop was for some reason it was just horrible like we barely found any and uh those are i mean yeah they taste super good there's it's obvious it's it's one of the most prized mushrooms in the culinary world for a reason the porcini so
1: yeah um,
2: but what i was going to say with what you were just saying like being able to find you know you're going out hunting and then you find let's say a mushroom that's in season like that's such a big benefit of getting into hunting, fishing, and foraging at the same time and really making it, you know, a, a holistic thing like that because you start to become a lot more aware as a participant because now you're hunting, but you're not just, like, focused on the deer. You're also looking at the trees and looking <laughs> at the ground and, like, oh, what is, I get distracted so much when I'm out deer hunting, you know, by other stuff or if I'm just going on a hike. And then this, like, connectedness that you built, Um you know between the the different activities that is great like i'm I'm trout fishing, and uh in Wisconsin, let's say coon valley like I, li- I- lived in Lacrosse, that's where I went to college. It's a driftless region, so for the midwest driftless that's one of the is best, awesome yeah, yeah, one of the best tr- trout fishing and foraging is insane there, hunting too, um, but like I'd be trout fishing in a stream, you know on a beautiful morning and I look down and I see a bunch of plants in the in the water well I have this foraging knowledge I know it's watercress so now I'm harvesting a bunch of watercress and also hopefully taking uh, back a trout and then cooking that together you smoke
1: know? it and make a smoke, nice little yeah. salad right and so or many... <laughs> like
2: or I could see like smoked make like a cream cheese and tr- smoked trout dip and then yeah have that with a piece of sourdough bread and a watercress salad or something (laughs) see it's amazing and it's never ending
1: (laughs) and the more you learn the more you want to do with so many things it's wonderful and to know where it came from for the most part what has been done to it or not done to it
2: it's so empowering like you are really the one that's in full control like more so even than you get if you get something from a local farmer you know you're the one that was responsible for killing that deer, catching that fish, digging up that root. And you're seeing it from that point all the way until, until it lands on your plate and in your stomach. And, you know, if something goes wrong, it's your fault. So there's a lot of responsibility there too. And uh, yeah, the connectedness in that way, it just, it just, I don't know, it feels really good. And it, there's something primal about it. Like, it's like, it almost triggers, like, at least in me, just like, instinct it just feels so right it feels like this is what I'm meant to do
1: it does it absolutely does I think I think it triggers something that that you're connected to that you were lacking that that you haven't uh experienced before and and all of a sudden it's like it's like you're touching this fabric that's somehow connected to you that you never even knew it and it's and it's putting you connecting you to another place and and it takes you away from that synthetic environment that's been created all around you, and it's yep. so terrible. Like, I'm, I'm going for a knee surgery here pretty soon. Um, and when I'm outside and I'm in the grass, for some reason, that pain, it goes away. And, and it, yes, it could be the magnetic field from the earth and, and my body's grounding, grounding to it. Yeah. But it's also soft and it's natural and the way it's supposed to be. And then you put those shoes on and you get on concrete that you're not supposed to be on and you're on it all day. It kills, yeah. it kills at the end of the day. And it it's one it's, of those things that it's not supposed to be there, but we're there all the time.
2: Right. And so many people <laughs> only experience that. Yes. You know, they live in big cities and um, yeah, it's they never get to go on any public land or they don't even know that it really exists, which is kind of sad to think about. But yeah, I mean it could be have you ever heard of nature bathing? That's kind of yeah. like one of the benefits. Yeah. I at all I see, the I get
1: <laughs> yeah, what the what the Japanese did in the studies with the people with heart problems and yeah.
2: Yeah, like I mean there were even studies that I read about where they put someone in a treadmill indoors had them running indoors versus out in the woods. And the person out in the woods just their immune system had a much much better reaction, like was boosted. Or, uh, compared to the person running indoors. So, there's definitely something we don't really fully understand about being out in our, like, truly our natural environment, you know, as human species. And uh, I think wild foods, at least, and, and going after them is one way to tap into that, that, like, ancestral living, I guess, to, that honestly, like, this really basic or essential experience of human life, right? Like, this yeah. is what we did for thousands tens of thousands of years of being humans is like not being in a in a house like this that i'm in right now with the heat on all winter like we were out there experiencing nature to the fullest and uh yeah if you start getting back into that i think you're not only gonna find better health especially with the exercise that comes along with it the nutrition but you're just also gonna like just feel a lot better mentally you know
1: yeah, I always tell my buddies if uh, the apocalypse comes, I'm going to be just a roaming uh, tribe, and anybody can join my tribe, and we're just going to be nomads, and we're yeah. just going to, you know, flow like the butter, if you will, uh, to stay in that perfect state where we don't get too hard and we don't get too soft. It's just you stay the right medium, and you and you flow the course, and just follow the right. food.
2: <laughs> yeah, man. yeah, I I, rem- I like think about that stuff sometimes too. Um, would be interesting i mean that's another benefit of hunting and fishing and foraging Um, and i say this kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek but you will be on people's like if the shit hits the fan i'm calling you list yeah and i
1: tell them i'm not going to be there (laughs) you can join my tribe but but i'm not going to be there
2: (laughs) right yeah but i get that all the time like oh you know how to forage like i'm calling you if stuff goes bad you know i'm like oh I don't know if I'll be able to find enough for all of you, but you can
1: try. try. No, that's uh, what I find interesting is my kids and how fast they pick it up. Hmm. Like they're, they're not so far disconnected from their instincts yet. And, and my, my middle kid, she just really gravitates to it. And she's always picking things up and touching it and looking at it and, and asking what's this one, uh, is it edible because it looks very similar and she'll pick up on things now. And she's like, this one looks very similar to this. And in fact, we just found, I think it was like yellow rocket or something like that um, in the, in the, in the mustard family. And, and, uh, and I'm like, it looks like a brassica, but I don't know. You know, uh,
2: wintercress is another name. for Yes.
1: Wintercress, yellow rocket. Yep. So um, just found that in the yard the other day. And my wife and I were talking and it's funny because we haven't sprayed our yard. And, and you know the previous people did, and I th- actually I think I did once when we first moved here, but that was over like 10 years ago now. And so it's funny to see all the things that are coming back, and we don't put fertilizer or grass seed or anything and just let the natural stuff come back. And so now you're seeing the winter crust or the yellow rocket and all these other things just popping up all over the place and and uh last year was the first year that I saw cardinal flower, and uh oh, wow. yeah, so cardinal lobelia cardinalis right I think that's and and saw that in my yard for the first time ever, and I was like, oh, that's amazing
2: well or, that's ca- the thing yeah yeah
1: it it's just well
2: the, the thing is like a lot of the what we consider to be weeds <sighs> are really edible plants, yeah. like yeah, they're like like dandelion, um the wind like the yellow rocket (laughs) amaranth like lambs quarters i love lambs quarters. same like
1: (laughs) that's what so many of these
2: all right and so many of these plants are like burdock that's when i'm i'm really trying to get good at burdock this year and that's considered a um a huge like weed and people want to remove it out of their out of their land yeah, I mean, it has some downsides. It's basically the plant that grows these giant rhubarb-like leaves and has a giant stalk that's like six foot tall and has, grows nasty burrs that you can never get off anything. But it's a it's actually a domesticated vegetable. Like yeah. in Asia, they still plant it for like in, in Japan and whatnot. It's huge in their cuisine to use burdock. Isn't that uh, a roots. different
1: species of burdock though? Like uh,
2: I don't know, I don't know yeah. about that. Because there's,
1: it? I think, I think their burdock gets bigger and it's a little bit more tender um, i know there's a now that could common, be the growing method but
2: yeah i know I'm, and that is a thing though like you know if you grow something in more softer soil often it has better eating qualities than something grown in the wild sometimes um, but i think there's like a great burdock from what i was been studying and then a common burdock you know, okay maybe they have the great burdock over there um but yeah i'm really excited to most people go after the roots. And I was just uh, learning that the stalks, when peeled, are not fibrous at all. The young stalks—they're like starchy and uh, are great in like soups and stews. You can use them like a potato or turnip and whatnot. So, oh, that's awesome! That's, that's <laughs> no, I'm gonna main... do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm
1: definitely do gonna like, do that this year.
2: One of the one of the main plants I'm looking for, and I have found now over the years that I don't really try to focus on a bunch of new. Plants or mushrooms every year because uh, you just get overwhelmed and you can't learn that species deeply enough and then get good enough at identifying it with confidence to be able to take it home for food unless you have like a mentor or something, which is huge too, by the way. So for me, um, what I always like to do around this time of the year is like I'll make a foraging list in the winter of my staples that I have spots for already that I know I can easily get because I've marked the spots, I've been there, I've harvested them. I can look at pictures and the dates and timing to get a good idea of when they might, when it might come time to harvest them. Um, And then a list, like a section, a list of like my primary, like my priority plants and mushrooms. These are like the ones that I definitely want to have end up in my skillet that year if I can. And those will usually be like one or two per like spring, summer, fall. And uh, then also, though, like a couple what I call like secondary plants or mushrooms that are, I, I think they're cool. They'd be cool to find, but I'm not going to put so much time into researching them more. So maybe I'll just look at a couple pictures because um, what I, what's often happened is I'll look for like one species and then I run into this other species that I was just kind of, you know, reading into a little bit Um so I think it's always good to have like your main ones you definitely want to find, but then also do a little research into some other ones. Uh, so you might be able to to find those pretty easily on your walk, trying to find the, the primary, like your priority ones. Is it, that is a thing, right? Like, have you noticed how a lot of, especially in Wisconsin, I feel like it was this way, a lot, a lot of the edibles were kind of grown in similar similar areas, usually like around bodies of water is what I was yeah. kind of finding and and that makes sense cuz like all of our ancestors would settle around bodies of water cuz there's just more life there right
1: yeah in fact my neighbor was telling me he's like your property uh was typically like a native campsite an indigenous campsite back in the day Whoa, and i was like really? that's cool and and he goes yeah when we were kids because he's grown up in the area he said uh that they used to find a lot of arrowheads after storms, heavy storms, right on one of the little uh, knobs on my property, and I was like, "Really? That's so interesting." And I've gone out looking a bunch of times, and I haven't found anything. Oh like, man! After would, floods, where the roads away the bank, I've looked a lot, but I've never found anything. And. It'd be pretty cool to find something, but he said, uh, and, and and after he said that, I started thinking about it. And I'm like, well, it makes sense. It's a body of water. It's kind of mm-hmm. on a main corridor that they used to travel. There was actually like a, a trade route that was, uh, they actually named it. I can't remember what the name was, but it was like a heavily traveled trade route. And so they'd be along that on all the way from back, you know, hunting grounds and stuff. So (laughs) kind of neat to see that and and hear about it and like know it exists. And now it makes sense to me. Why though? You know, because it was a knob, it was higher up. They, you know, they weren't directly on the water, but it was right below them and stuff. So
2: yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, that's one of my favorite things about all of this is not just like modern day foraging, but then also learning about the anthropology and the archeology span around how our ancestors did everything right like it just it was such a different life they didn't have the tools we have today and they still
1: got it done right absolutely in like, fact some of their tools might have been better and we don't realize really? it but yeah <laughs> their methods then, right yeah. we're sitting here with a hammer on our garage floor cracking uh, black walnuts and acorns and yeah. and they probably had some big stone something that they used and and then poured them and put them in pits and poured water on top of them and leached them and we're trying to do it with 5 gallon buckets and uh and or like some people use their toilet tank or something and oh my and, god and it's totally <laughs> not the right way to do it and and uh they had the method dialed in and we're doing it all backwards but now. all
2: that knowledge got lost yeah and absolutely but especially like i think I think we knew a lot up to like 150 years ago when like all this industrial food was happening. I think before then, people knew a lot more than we do, do now and it just like, it does not take long. It really just takes like a generation or two for some of that knowledge to get lost um, because no one wants to do it anymore because it's quote unquote hard, right? And like difficult. Um, yeah, and I, I don't... I've
1: been trying to pursue that more and more lately. And uh, really, really, just try and learn those lost ways, especially food preservation, uh, all those things, because it just intrigues me number one that that I can take a piece of meat, salt it, do diff- whatever to it, and come back six months later and cut a chunk off of it. you what know were you,
2: what were you doing there? I'm I haven't done about. it yet
1: I'm, I'm okay, researching, okay. but yes. Yeah. Um, but, but things like that. And so before my grandmother passed, I actually went down to Texas and sat down with her and interviewed her and asked her about all those things. And she even had lost so many of those things. She grew up as a kid doing them, but didn't remember them and remembered in her mind, she hated them. And one of the things she told me is she hated having to do that. And she didn't want to marry a farmer. That was her thing. She did not want to marry a farmer, and so she married my grandfather, and and they lived their lifestyle the way they lived, and you know moved around military base to military base. But um, they, she did not want to marry a farmer. She did not want that life, and she said it was too hard.
2: When was that? Like the fifties?
1: No, that was that would have been uh, like Great Depression. You know, she grew up. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, it's, but
2: after after that is kind of when like the big act thing happened, and like. You know, that, that famous quote, like, get bigger, go home, or whatever it was, where they basically just yeah. centralized our food system more, and, like, farming became something that was frowned upon, and, you know, I you had to be educated to be something. And now at this point, we're at, we're at the point where, like, we don't even know where our food's coming from. We don't know the people who are pro- working hard every day to produce it, and they're definitely not getting
1: paid. Like,
2: it's basically like the corporations controlling that are getting paid, but not the people producing our food. So. Yeah, she
1: was born in the, I think, either early 20s or before then. And uh, so it was interesting to hear everything and how i mean they would even save the corn cobs it was something to where everything was utilized and so when they would shell corn the corn would go in the bin another one would go in the cob bin or the cob house that they had and then when they ran out of coal in the winter they were using the corn cobs for heat so i mean everything was utilized
2: that's wild yeah well but staying on that topic of utilization though that's another thing of like if you're hunting foraging you learn how to butcher yourself right it's wild how well you can utilize that animal um you can i mean you can use the bones you can use the tongue you could use the eyes if you wanted to you could use the hide for something that's something i i really would love to get in into i saw a guy on instagram wearing a buckskin sweatshirt oh that's so so cool and i'm like man that would be cool to have um or like even a belt or something you know something much simpler to make but You can use that animal in so many ways, and I think you kind of owe it to that animal after taking its life that you try to at least make an effort to utilize as much as you can. Be it organ meats, which by the way, are like super nutritional, uh, super nutritious, micronutrient dense, um, or be it like the bones to make bone broth. So many people I know just, they don't never take the rib meat, the neck meat off their deers. And I, I would actually tell my friends in college, like, call me, I will get it before you throw it out.
1: I don't um, take the rib meat off my deer. I do take the neck meat.
2: Why <clears throat> not? Is, are you like worried about, like, are you not a fan of the fat or what? There's what is just not, I mean,
1: there's really not that much at all on yeah. it. And, and I you, use a lot of times I use it to bake coyotes at that point.
2: Yeah, that's not, I mean, that's at least using it. Yeah, I utilize it and the
1: birds. I like feeding the birds and watching the birds peck at it too.
2: (laughs) Right, like you're at least giving it back. Um, But you'd be surprised if you learn how to take off like a whole rib roast, um, take off the entire ribs instead of boning them out, um, which I just started doing with my friend on on deer in Wisconsin. And then what you can do is you have a big flat piece of meat, right? you can roll it up and braise it that way. Uh, it's kind of like in Germany, we do ro- roulades. Roulades, yes. Ba- yeah, which are <laughs> like a, um, a thinly cut piece of meat, pound it to tenderize it. And then where I'm from in Germany, we do mustard, um, bacon, pickles, and pickles. Pickles, yeah. And you roll that onion. thing up. And, <laughs> and onion, yeah. And you roll that thing up and you braise it in like a brown, you know, you braise it and then make a brown sauce with it and some red cabbage on the side. You do that with a rib roast it's so good and it's i mean i love fat i'm i've been eating a low carb diet
1: forever like high fat high high um protein that's not a traditional german food diet necessarily with the, like the no, no carb well i mean yeah most no. of their their meats are paired with some heavy carbs <laughs>
2: it, yeah it is true and that that's also came that was actually i forgot to mention that earlier uh during the whole time when i was learning to hunt and fish and becoming much more aware of my food, I read this book called The Primal Blueprint, which changed the way I think about food. It's written by Marxism and it's all about like ancestral health, eating like this paleo primal diet, you know, cutting out a lot of the refined sugars, a lot of those unnatural sugar sources, then grains. So if you think about it, we've really only been eating grains for probably 10,000 years, but humans have been around for like several million years. But we started eating grains when we developed agriculture, which was about eight to 10,000 years ago. So it's kind of new to our diet in the grand scheme of things. So that's probably why a lot of people don't deal with it super well. No, you know? yeah, so I'm one of I, those. I, <laughs> so, yeah, so. And I, I, I cut those out, it's super hard because they're like in everything, <laughs> but um, you know, it it was definitely a big game changer for my digestion, I would say. Like for my So
1: are my you diet. I mean completely grain free or are you uh, doing no. like ancient I'm, type grains I, I, and, and
2: I was like there was a part where I was there was a time I did that I for this, almost
1: like, a year. Yeah I, I was
2: doing like hardcore low carb for like like keto for like three and then I went into like 80 to 100 grams of carbs for, and then still mostly no grains. I mean, I've been doing it for like nine years. And then last year I started to include um, honey and fruit again. And now a little bit more like rice again. And, uh, and my girlfriend loves to bake sourdough. So like a fermented grain, I think is fine. Um, because that's actually, if you look at traditional diets, like that's how people consume the grains. They process them somewhere, some way, usually fermenting, soaking the grains, which... A lot of these grains have anti nutrients in them one of them being uh, phytic acid and that's one that one it causes gut issues but it also binds to really essential minerals and nutrients so if you eat the grains unsoaked or unfermented with other food you might not be able to absorb all the nutrients you're getting from that other food but soaking and fermenting it actually deactivates that phytic acid and uh you know unlocks a lot more nutrition and it's interesting how our ancestors knew that but we have totally forgotten it right
1: so you don't miss Um, eating sparrows the spatzles
2: spatzle (laughs) spatzle i i I mean i do and like (laughs) i'm never a hundred percent in all this like if (laughs) like if it's christmas or something you know i will eat it um and i'm also making i draw a fine line between like store-bought and like homemade oh yeah it's got to be homemade With some yeah, homemade
1: gravy be. right out of the the cast iron skillet too. Yeah, but yeah. I can't eat those anymore. I don't. Yeah. Uh, but my grandmother I, used to make them. You know, it was I, it was like browned butter and whatever meat juices or whatever it was. Uh, and oh yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it's all it's <laughs> it all great. And I I do agree. Like there are some ancient grain varieties that seem to really do better with a lot of people. Like uh, einkorn is one. That's I think even the oldest grain. I tried. Have. It.
1: I couldn't do it. You didn't do no, it. No, really. Unfortunately, have you yeah. have
2: you tried sourdough stuff like real sourdough?
1: <sighs> it's been so long, but yes, I I have. I feel like they still affect me. Um, yeah. At this point, I just I can't do gluten anymore. Yeah. It, I think yeah, it's gotten the, to the point to where it's so bad. And I had so recently. I I don't actually drink, so I found some non-alcohol gluten removed beers. And I thought to myself, oh, this is cool. Now I can kind of just enjoy that taste that I do love and right. uh, and and enjoy a couple of them. So I had one just to test the waters and everything was fine. And I was like, oh, this is great. You know, I'm standing on a dock on a, you know, on a lake. It's nice to have a beer, drink it, watch the sunset. Next day I have two. No problem. About a week later, I order a six pack, comes in <laughs> Amazon and I'm out in the yard and it's uh, just drinking them, you know, one here and there. And I consume the whole six pack. Well, later that night, I, I forgot all about the fact that I drank six of them. I had gastrointestinal issues, but we also ate out that night. So I thought maybe it was something that I ate while we were out. Um, and then the next day I wake up, my joints are stiff. They're mm. sore. Um. And I had these like blisters on my face and I'm like, what? And I, I didn't put two and two together at first. And I was talking to my wife and she goes, might've been the beers you drank. And I was like, oh, it was. So gluten removed is not gluten taken out. <laughs> it's, it's
2: probably like decaf or and you know yeah. no alcohol. There's yeah. still a little left.
1: It was enough to and mess like, me up pretty good yeah
2: yeah and i mean what's probably happening is like your immune systems are reacting to the little gluten particles that are going into your bloodstream and whatnot because your your gut you know uh, has issues with it and lets it through so yeah um yeah i mean i think that is one of the major reasons why people have so many i mean it's so common for people to have a bunch of gut issues these days and i think a lot of it is attributed to um, the modern grain that we're eating and the way we're processing it and And spraying on
1: it it and everything else and i think those chemicals tend to also i mean it sticks on it we know it's on it they've tested cheerios and found that they're one of the highest glyphosate of anything (laughs) stuff for feeding kids Right. right and the fact that now your body's getting those irritants and it it's it's making that association with the gluten as well, which is causing it to your body to have that inflammatory response even more when it when it does get the gluten. So right, kind of crazy.
2: And when you cut it out long enough, like the carbs, the refined stuff, and especially the grain, like you don't crave it anymore. It's got to be long enough. It can't be just like a month or two. Yeah. If you really cut it out for like several years, I mean, I rarely am I all. I do love pastries, like don't get me wrong, that's like my one vice, but I rarely have a craving for them. And uh, if I do, I want like something well-made. And uh, yeah, if you just really cut it out long enough, you just kinda don't want it. And what I use, I mean, I I love cooking like extravagant recipes and whatnot. And, but I usually, day to day, I eat so simple. I eat literally mostly meat, like a pound, usually two pounds of meat is what I eat a day then I, and then I'll make like a pound per meal two meals and I'll cook ground meat which I used to kind of be against turning my wild game into ground meat but not anymore it's first so simple yeah. <laughs> so it's so, so versatile and simple yeah. but I basically just cook my ground meat in burger form or like taco meat form season it however I want in a skillet and then I'll cook you know I'll do oven roasted veggies whatever I feel like on that day and uh, maybe an egg and an avocado and I like just have like a, a a meat and veggie scramble, like a skillet basically. Yeah. And that's what I eat every day. It never gets boring to me. And I'm getting like top nutrition and enough calories. And I'm eating actually less than what the average American eats uh eats for per day. So I just looked this up recently. It's it's and-
1: insane the amount that we eat.
2: Well yeah, and the amount we spend on a- an average American spends I think 22 or 23 dollars a day on food, 12- around 12 of that goes for food you eat at home and the rest for eating out. Well, I can buy a pound of meat for like 4 bucks or if I hunt, I mean I have a shit ton of like uh, insane <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah. I have a, I have a, I have a ton of uh, I have a ton of ground meat in the freezer right now as we also just butchered some lambs recently and uh you know, like it—it's just I probably one of those meals costs me between eight to ten bucks, and I'm eating way healthier than most people.
1: You know, did you keep so, the
2: brains? No, I did not keep. That. I've never done that. Me neither. I've never done that.
1: I, I but I, I'm always curious when people do that and and utilize it. Like I, I am not a fan of head cheese, so I don't know.
2: Uh, yeah, how it would be. Yeah. I, that's something I've, especially with like I don't know how you feel about CWD and all. Um, but like, that's something I've kind of avoided a bit. I, I would try it from like, a, like some, like a cow for sure, you know, sheep or something. Um, I probably should one day just try it from a wild game, but I've, I'm talking from the
1: lambs that you butchered.
2: Oh, from the lambs. Okay. Yeah. No, we did not take the brain. Not the brain.
1: I don't, I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to even consume the organs of most of my deer. I get, I get all of them tested because. Really? Tell me about that. Yeah. I get them all tested.
2: Tested for CWD specifically? Yeah. Okay. Because I have lately been doing a bit more research and I guess a lot of like deer in heavy agricultural areas where there's a lot of monocrops and pesticides Mm -hmm. and especially close to cities. Their organs, some of them, tend to have higher levels of pesticides and whatnot. Yeah. So, it's something I hate to say, but even in the wild game, you know, it, it's getting in there. But that always makes me think, like, if it's in those levels in the wild game, how much, how higher the levels in the farm-raised animals? You the know, ones that, that are, they're feeding.
1: Well, I mean, they're, feeding they're obviously it. feeding the grain. At, the deer are definitely eating the grain and if anybody says it's a hundred percent organic, natural, whatever, and you mm-hmm. hunt in the Midwest, that is absolutely not the case. Nor not is it the case with any fowl that you hunt. Yeah. Especially yeah. because they're going all the way through the grain belt, eating their way the entire way right. and and making it to wherever they are that you shoot at.
2: I still think there's <laughs> A difference, though in terms of like them being exposed to the natural elements, just having an overall oh yeah health healthier <laughs> yeah. life, and I think and they're also know, not
1: injected that... with a bunch of hormones and antibiotics right. and and uh, vaccinations and different things.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah, I mean they're they're va- they're putting the, the mRNA vaccine now in cows and whatnot. So
1: yeah, yeah, that's a interesting topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right.
2: Well, we'll see how that like gets people riled up once it actually like becomes more common knowledge. But yeah, you
1: know. yeah, there's there's a lot to that, and that's all goes back to pretty much what we've talked about the entire time, and that's uh, getting your own food, though. Hundred um, sure. percent. But, Poldy, it's been awesome. I think we could ramble on for a long time. It seems that we definitely have uh, the same ideas when we talk about things, and it's always interesting to to hear somebody else talk about them. But uh, before we go, can you kind of tell me where everybody can find you, listen to your podcast, reach out to you if they want to, and follow you on uh, socials?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, I really appreciate you having me on. This has been super fun. I agree. We could definitely <laughs> ramble on a lot more. Um, but I think some of the stuff we just covered uh, will hopefully bring a lot of value to your listeners. Um, yeah. If you want to find me, I mean, the number one thing I do, my biggest like passion project is also a podcast. Like I mentioned earlier, Year of Plenty is what it's called. You can find that on any podcast platform out there. Um, cover topics around like a like wild food traditional food waste nutrition homesteading getting more into the food preservation side of things too like canning and fermenting and whatnot Um, and you can find that on www.theyearofplenty.com otherwise instagram is the one platform i'm most active on i'm just at poldi wieland on there p-o-l-d-i-w-i-e-l-a-n-d and then um, if you wanted to, like Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, they are all uh, podcast-specific pages there just for a year of plenty if you want to find it. But, yeah, podcast is where I pump out the most content, and then I'm really trying to get my blog going just because I found the value in writing, and I've start, I'm starting to enjoy it more.
1: Me too. Um, That's something right? I never thought I would do. In fact, when I first started the podcast, I reached out to a guy named Tony Peterson. And you may mm-hmm. have heard of him as a writer. And oh. uh, and he does some stuff with Meat Eater too. But anyway, I reached out to him and he was actually nice enough to talk to me about podcasting. And at, at the time, his podcast was one of my favorite ones to listen to. So I reached out to him. Oh, that's awesome. He was super helpful. and And he goes, it's kind of refreshing to have somebody reach out to me and not ask me about writing. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, that's something I don't think I'll ever want to do. And here I am two and a half, almost three years later, into it, and lo and behold, I find myself sitting down and just pouring words on onto, onto yeah. the screen of my laptop, and next thing you know, I'm a thousand words deep. And I never thought yeah. that that would be me, but now I almost want to call him back and say, hey, do you... Uh do you think maybe you could give me some pointers on that too? <laughs> yeah,
2: man, it's so the writing part, it's, it's so hard to sit down and start doing it. And I'm kind of like sometimes a perfectionist, but I've just kind of let go of like the it needs to be a perfect format. Like need, everything needs to be perfect. I'm just writing. out. I think thoughts. that's
1: the German in us that, that yeah, does that yeah. <laughs> because I'm the same way. And My wife gets so mad at me and she tells me the same as what you just said. You need to put it down. You can always edit it later. You can always change it. Right. And I'm always looking for the right words to emphasize properly. And I hyper fixate on that to the point to where it'll take me 10 minutes to write one sentence before I get to the next one. And I, right. I'm just starting to overcome that too.
2: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that'll, that'll be good. Um, I'm hoping to just do a bunch of, bunch of blogs. And it's just so good to hash out your own ideas like that and opinions and just uh, become, I mean, if you look at it, all the greats, had a journal over writing teddy roosevelt you know like all these people that uh we remember in history and that really had a big impact um with their ideas they were all writing um journals basically so i there's got to be some value into in it if if all these people were doing it
1: you were definitely more organized as me as far as your foraging journals and things like that i do not (laughs) do that and it's such a great idea it's and and Clay Bowers does that all the time, and he can tell me, oh yeah, this is kind of weird because the past four years it's always been this date, and now it's it they it's in season right now, and for just about everything out there, and I'm the uh-huh. kind of guy where I'm like, ah, the weather kind of feels like it uh, might be might be time to start looking, you know, and I'm just not, I don't, my wife gets mad at me, I for time keeping track of time uh calendar i could care less what day it is on that calendar <laughs> it doesn't matter to me it's never mattered it, it's i just freedom I, I go by field yeah <laughs> yeah
2: but uh nobody else likes that though. i i don't i gotta say i try to do a journal but i'm not as consistent with it as i would like to be like i i really want to try to make it a, a real like consistent thing starting this year um because i have friends at Hunt and fish i have one friend he's like my fishing mentor knows everything about fishing salmon on Lake Michigan and walleye. And he's, since he's like 15, he's kept a fishing journal and he, the knowledge he has now and using that to make decisions for the following season is just invaluable for him. So wow.
1: that is, yeah, um, I need to, I need to do well, that. With,
2: the good thing with foraging is here's a hot tip. I mean, I mentioned it a little bit earlier um, is taking pic- a ton of pictures and, and then that. organizing that maybe if you can into folders because you can always go back look at um, the date and time hopefully you have your location turned off you know in yeah, case you right. send it to someone else yeah. like i would like to have the location on there but i got onyx for that to to mark my spots which is another big tip in foraging i think is mark 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 everything yeah because uh you can analyze it before the season also see date and time again, and really go back to those spots because most plants and mushrooms are going to keep popping in that same area year after year. So,
1: you know what's weird is I I feel I feel my way through the woods now. Like I, it's like I I you know how we talked about that connection. It's just yeah. one. Of, I I try and feel my way through with that connection, and I'll stop and I'll examine a log and be like, I remember this log from however long. That's weird that that's here. I thought it was further over maybe it flooded and then you know you just kind of that's the way my my mind is a very messed up mind i think and if people had the to see the inner workings of it and how and how it actually works because i'll get wow. so sidetracked i'll end up a mile from where my destination was because i felt my way through the woods and ended up touching a couple plants and it piqued my curiosity to see whatever was there <laughs>
2: It just means you're like a really good observer and a really curious person, which is not both are, both are not bad things, you know?
1: Yeah. I think ADD tends to work in your benefit when you're in nature and that's about the only place, but. <laughs> yeah.
2: Ooh, elk. Ooh. And yeah, then you're yeah. looking at something on the ground. Yeah.
1: I always pull out my binoculars too, and I'll be up in the tree stand and like, People, if they saw me, they would think I was actually looking for deer. I could care less because if the deer is not within range, unless I'm calling it in or whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm looking for mushrooms and different plants that I can pick when I get down.
2: <laughs> all right, all right, that's the beauty of it yeah. all. So,
1: awesome, man! I to- totally appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, and uh, it was for sure. it was amazing to talk to you. We'll have to have you back on.
2: Yeah, I'd love to, and I'd love to have you on the Year of Plenty as well sometime. Absolutely. We should totally get that going. Awesome. Thanks, man.
1: Yep. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.